1: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how do you make people laugh? My guest today has his own techniques. What people call dark and despairing, I call funny, says David Sedaris. In his often melancholy, sometimes savage stories about the oddities of everyday life, his pen holds enough acid for everyone, from his own family to Donald Trump. I haven't got the slightest idea how to change people, he writes. But still, I keep a long list of prospective candidates, just in case I should ever figure it out. And Savagery, Leavened by Wit, does sell. His many books, including Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk and Theft by Finding, have sold 10 million copies in 25 languages. His readings of them have been nominated for Grammy Awards for Comedy and Spoken Word. David Sedaris, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. So
1: you're routinely called America's greatest living humorist, which is quite the accolade, or
0: is it a burden? Gosh, I never read anything about myself, so I wasn't aware of that. But I I used to not like the term humorist, but I think I aged into it. You know, I always thought, oh, if you were a humorist, you had a cardigan with patches on the elbows. And now I do.
1: You've got an interesting backstory. Everyone who writes and performs comedy puts their own life into it. But yours was quite tough. You dropped out of college a lot of times. You did a lot of menial jobs. Good fodder, or was it just the path to fame?
0: I never had any skills. I mean, I still don't. Like, I just type with one finger, and I never learned to drive. So I kind of had to take the jobs that I took were pretty low level. But I, w- I wouldn't take any of it back. You know, I mean, I think it all, it all worked out in the long run. And it was all, you know, it's all material, I suppose. Do you remember when you first made people laugh? Uh, I was in art school and we had critiques. And so you would put your paintings up and talk about them. And people would talk as if they were speaking to a therapist. And I remember being surprised that, and thinking, oh, they're not thinking of the rest of us as an audience. They're just thinking of themselves. And so my paintings were nothing special, so I wrote a little comic monologue in the voice of a character explaining why his paintings weren't better, kind of blaming everyone around him. And people laughed, and I thought, oh, that feels much better than what I was doing before. You know, that felt better than anything. I'd been writing for seven years at that point, but I never showed any of it to anybody.
1: do you still feel any hesitation when you present writing? You just
0: know it's funny. I mean, I think when you're reading in front of an audience that's bought a ticket to come to see you, you've already won, in a sense. It's different if you're reading in front of people who don't know who you are or who really don't want to be read to in the first place. That's that's the, the challenge. I mean, if you can make those people laugh, that's pretty good. You talk a lot about overheard conversations
1: I get the impression that your mind is like a kind of flypaper to which conversations that you hear whether you're on the metro or walking about stick in your mind do you collect bits of material from other people consciously or does it just fly into
0: your brain and out into the page? I mean I keep a notebook in my pocket so when I hear something um, you know there was a man yesterday who I saw and his mother was bent over with osteoporosis and he was helping her at the train station. And just the way that he spoke to her and the way that he called her mother. He didn't call her mom, but he called her mother. And, oh, let's just get you comfortable, mother. You know, I was all up in that, you know, like standing close. I just wanted to hear what that sounded like, you know, a dutiful son. It was beautiful. But any kind of craziness, I'll go stand near or, you know, nothing's more exciting to me. I remember my boyfriend and I were in a restaurant, and we had a fight in a restaurant. And, and I told him beforehand, I said, I don't want you to come with me. Like, I'm mad at you right now. Just let me go alone. But instead he came with me, and we had a fight in a restaurant. And there was a guy, a single person behind us at the table behind us. And I thought, that's what I live for. You know, you're going to go out to eat, and you're going to have be privy to a couple fighting. Because if you're with somebody else, you don't notice it so much. But when you're alone, that's when you really...
1: There's something particularly excruciating about
0: Having an argument in a restaurant. I was in, in the worst.
1: That's an example, actually. I was going to ask you if you felt that you, your kind of, of humor always comes in some way from pain or conflict that's then gone through a, a process that becomes funny.
0: I mean, a lot of, quite often something awful will happen to me and then I just think, one day, this will be funny. And on that day, I'll write about it. One thing that stands out is I, I, when I first moved to Paris, I got a kidney stone. And so I went to the hospital, and they told me to. They took care of it and told me to come back in a week for some tests. So I returned a week later, and the nurse led me to a dressing room, and I knew undress to your underpants. I knew that term from a medical French book that I had. But then she said, I don't know. That. And I said, what? And she said, I don't know. That. You can only ask twice. You can only say what twice. So I go into a dressing room, and there are two doors leading out of it. And I undress to my underpants and I walk out that door and there's a little waiting room and I sit there in my underpants, which are briefs, right? And then I'm sitting there and then this couple comes in, fully dressed, and takes a seat. And then some other people come in, fully dressed, and they take seats. And I am the only person in his underpants (laughs) in that room. And I'm thinking, oh, she must have said something about a robe, And she must have said something about the other door. But I feel like if I get up and return to the dressing room, I'll look like a fool. It's got sort of Monsieur
1: Hulot kind of quality (laughs) to this scene, hasn't it?
0: And I'm not comfortable at all, like, with my shirt off, let alone my pants off. And I just remember sitting there thinking, one day, this will be funny. Today is not that day, but the day will come when it is funny to me.
1: And that's an example to me, partly because you told me it takes place in, in French, this story, I'm thinking of Monsieur Law and the, the dream, the awful comic dream we've all had about sitting there in our underpants or undergarments and uh, everyone else being fully clothed. Is that something that you, do we all have a kind of Freudian based soup of humour or is it very different across cultures? I mean, you know, France, you know, Britain, you know, America. Do we find the same things funny?
0: You know, I'm often surprised by that. I'll go to another country and do a reading and I'm often surprised that things will work out, that people will laugh at the same things in Germany, say, that they did in the United States. I mean, they laugh in a different part because the sentence structure is different, you know, when you don't know until the end of a sentence, you know, whether you ate something or stabbed it. So the laugh will come in a different place, but I'm surprised that it comes. You
1: often write it about... Your family, and, and sort of a lot of your books have either touched on it or, or gone in, into more depth. Most recently, I think you have started to write about your mother and about her life and also many of her problems. I mean, you and your sister have collaborated under a named talent family in writing plays together. I think. Do you think there's a shared funny
0: gene in families? In big families, I think. I notice that when I – I can often tell when I meet somebody who's from a big family – in my family, all we wanted was to make my mother laugh. So that's all any of us tried to do. So you get good at it. She wasn't stingy with her laughter. I mean, she laughed easily, but there was still a quality to her laughter, and you could tell if she really appreciated something or just sort of liked it.
1: And why do you think you were so keen to make your mother laugh, even down to knowing about the, the quality of that laughter?
0: Uh, because we adored her, and she liked us in return, and it was just a nice, I feel so fortunate, you know, when I think back on it. I always think people who, people who don't like their mothers can tend to be difficult people to get along with, and it's not always their fault. Maybe they had like a really horrible mother, but I was just fortunate in that I had a great one, and it was sort of like if you have a friend who, who you think is funny, who you respect, you know, it feels good to make that person laugh as well. It's just a way of making her happy, I suppose.
1: And families are this crucible of, of laughter and of fun
0: and affection, but also
1: you know, also sadness. And you've written about your mother's alcoholism. You've also written about your own addiction and link, I suppose, between some mental health and, and comedy. Does that preoccupy you more as the years go by?
0: Uh, no, it doesn't more. You know, when you when you read about comedians, right? Comedians often have this sort of desperate, you could almost call it pathetic, need to be loved. And I'm not a comedian, but I'm close, you know? So I must have that same pathetic, never-ending uh, need to be loved, you know, by by strangers. I trust that the people I know, I don't bother them for it, you know? But it's really important to me to get that from complete strangers.
1: And did your own state of health and mind and becoming sober affect your work? And we think of comedy rising from darkness. But how does it feel when your own life is part of the substance that you're putting out there?
0: Well, I never felt like I've exposed myself, though. I've never felt like I've given away a part of my soul. You know, like one thing, no, I've never written about who gets to me. I don't mean a politician, that's different, but in terms of a friend or a critic or nobody knows who gets to me and that that seems important to me to guard. Let's talk about Calypso,
1: which is your new collection. Some people have said it's darker than usual. I suppose it depends where, you you know, what you consider dark in humour because there's always been flashes of both darkness and light in your writing. But this does meditate on age and to an extent, I think, more openly on death. Am I right?
0: Well, maybe. I mean, I never sit down and think about writing a book. I just sort of write and then one day it's a stack that's as big as a book and then we turn it into a book. I mean, I'm 61 now, but I think what made me feel older, I think, is my dad is 95, and I think it used to be in the days of yore, you know, your parents would die when they were like in their mid 60s, so maybe you'd be 40 or, and you'd be free, you're nobody's child anymore, you're your own invention, but now that people are living longer, especially if it's an adversarial relationship with a parent. I think it can kind of deform you in a way and then you can be 60 or you can be 70 and you're still somebody's child and I think inside you're like this twisted up kind of creature.
1: I mean if you have like longevity is a bit of a curse.
0: If in in that way I think it is. If you have an adversarial relationship, you know if you have a great relationship with the parent, then that's beautiful you just get to experience it longer. And because I write about my own life, you know my sister Tiffany committed suicide and and, uh, you know, so that's, you know, that's kind of hard to make, to, you know, to write about in a terribly lighthearted way. I mean, I do my best, but so I think that's where the death comes from. And then just the aging is just, you know, you wake up one day and people are calling you, sir.
1: Giving up their seat on the
0: tube in London. And you know what? I will take the seat. <laughs> I will take it. <laughs>
1: That sense when you said it was something so tragic as, as losing your sister, it was hard to make funny. It sounded almost like that you do to an extent, but you, you kind of feel almost obliged to look for humor in situations where a lot of people just put them in the box of a very somber and sad experience.
0: But, you know, when my sister committed suicide, I, I was with with my other sisters a few days later and we laughed a lot. I mean, there was a lot to laugh about. I mean, we weren't laughing over the fact that our sister was dead, but we were recalling things and laughing. And I don't know. I, I, I would never want to read something out loud to an audience that was completely serious. That silence would absolutely kill me. When you're reading something serious like that, you just hear people coughing. And I can go to the symphony if I want that. And so the humor in that story works almost like a pressure valve. The audience laughs really hard at things that aren't really that funny. But I think they just feel like after the past two pages, they really want to make some kind of noise and clear their chimney. Yeah.
1: Now you're enjoying middle age. You're sixty-one. I think you've
0: revealed Is that middle age or late middle age?
1: Mm, no, it depends on your level of optimism.
0: <laughs> I think it's late.
1: Do you say middle age? Because I've taken to saying midlife because I think that lasts for a very long time. Oh, I think it's, it's sort of better marketing.
0: Oh, midlife, yeah. You know, there's not a thing we can do about it. I mean, I don't want to be... I guess the fear is always that you're going to... Dress too young and try to, but then okay. I just went to Tokyo, and bought a pair of sequin culottes. Of course you do. Sequin culottes, and then I tell myself, well, that's not dressing young. It's not like you see young people wearing sequin culottes. You don't see anybody wearing sequin culottes. So it's not dressing young. It's just dressing crazy.
1: And where are you going to wear your sequin culottes?
0: They're hard to travel with. So, I'm going to wear them on my tour that I have coming up. I, I have shows in London, so I'm going to wear my cool lots, my seeking cool lots in London on stage.
1: At least they're going to get the audience they clearly deserve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> send, send us a picture, <laughs> promise. <laughs> um, t- tell me a, a bit more about the story that you talk about in Calypso, about discovering your own mercifully benign
0: tumor. Um, And, uh, well, you better tell us what you did with it, because I can't possibly... I was thinking one day that if you had your tonsils taken out, your cat would want to eat your tonsils. I'm sure if you put your tonsils in a cat's ball, your cat would eat them. So then I found I had this tumor on my side, and it was nothing. It was a fatty tumor, a lipoma. Dogs get them all the time. And at the time, I had been... At our house on the coast of North Carolina, there are all these snapping turtles who live in a canal. And I thought, huh, I bet one of my those turtles would like to eat my tumor. So I went to a surgeon on the coast, and he said, yes, he could take the tumor out. And I said, great, because I want to feed it to a turtle. And he said, I can't give you anything I removed from your body. And so I thought, okay, I mean, I made it. Why can't I have – give me my tumor. Mm. They give women babies, right? Why can't they give me my tumor? So I was mentioning that on a stage one night in El Paso, Texas, and this woman came up and said, I'll cut it out of you. She said, I'm not a surgeon. She said, but I am a doctor, and if I open you up and it seems above my pay grade, we'll close you up and send you on your way, but I'm pretty sure I can do this.
1: It's a kind of risky offer.
0: Well, I don't know. I really liked her. She was funny, and I don't know. I just trusted her from the beginning, and so it would have she... It been
1: a great start to an bit though, wouldn't it? <laughs>
0: I don't know and it didn't a, a year earlier a veterinarian came up and said he would cut it out. But I didn't have a way to get to his office after the show. So anyway, went, went with this woman, she got the tumor out. She shipped it on ice to my sister's house. We brought it to North Carolina and I fed it to a turtle, and he was happy to have it.
1: You were sure it was okay for the turtle. I don't suppose this is kind of covered in in how to rear your turtle manuals. Well,
0: like if you took, let's say, a dog's heart Right, and you put it in the hot sun for a week and you fed it to a snapping turtle, the turtle would eat it. So they don't demand they've freshness. Yeah, they've had worse. <laughs> and I think you've been performing as well as
1: writing since the 1990s. So really you've made Americans laugh for quite a long time through a number of presidencies. I make it five, I think, that you've written throughout. and Do we laugh at the same things now and you can probably see where we're going to head with this in terms of where we are now in politics but have we changed what we laugh about
0: have we changed what we laugh about i think we've changed what we th- think we can laugh about in public i think that i remember i was reading a story in front of an audience i don't know, maybe about 10 years ago and it was about some tenants my parents had my parents had a bunch of rental property and they had these tenants that were real trouble right and uh it was a black couple and they claimed the ceiling fell in and that they sued my parents, right? So I read that story and I remember these people walked out of the theater and they said to the, to the manager, the people in there are laughing at the wrong parts, right? And I thought, gosh, I went, what's the right part to be laughed at? And there was something I read but on weren't this.
1: weren't they sensitive on the race point?
0: They were sensitive on the race, but they were white people judging the people around them for laughing. It's so hard to write about race in the United States. You know what I mean? If you mention some of a different race and if that person isn't perfect, then the audience thinks, wait a minute, if I laugh at this, is that wrong of me? Am I racist if I laugh at this? How is this? How would I? And you feel them getting snagged there. And so there are often times when I just leave that out of a story because I think I want the story to move and it's going to snag there. If I include that, people are going to be hung up on that. And what they're getting hung up on is... I mean, I was talking about... My sister Lisa was at Starbucks, and she saw a monkey in a dress. And I said that it was a pink frilly dress, the kind Mexican babies wear. And it is exactly the kind of dress that Mexican babies wear. But then the New Yorker was like, mm, can we get rid of that? And I said, but if I were to say it wore a beret the kind that old French men wear, that would be okay. But I noticed it when I was reading it out loud too. The audience would like, wait a minute, he said Mexican. So if you mention any nationality now, people get like, when, if I... Uh, Somebody said to me a while ago, I wrote in, my, in this book, my parents were at a restaurant in Raleigh when Martin Luther King was assassinated and everybody applauded. The whole restaurant broke into applause. And somebody said to me, oh, well, America's really changed. And I said, no, it hasn't. I said, it's just that those people wouldn't applaud. They would wait and get in their car. They wouldn't feel comfortable applauding in a public place. So they would just wait and do it later. But their feelings haven't changed. Just the idea of what they can get away with in public has changed.
1: And so on this question of what audiences find comfortable and indeed how it impacts on humor and and comedians we did an interview in a show we did on free speech in which we had a a female stand-up comedian who was sort of basically given an instruction in a particular setting not to make jokes about her weight and she said well it's my weight i'll make a joke about it if you know if i think it's funny and i think my audience will like it are we drawing this line in in the wrong place
0: You know, I don't know which is worse, a far-right audience or a far-left audience. Each of them is a hand around my throat, slowly choking the life out of me. And I really don't, I see one just as bad as the other, really. In your book and, and
1: elsewhere, actually, you've made your feelings about Donald Trump pretty clear. You've had some um, a fairly sort of robust jokes at his expense. I think you got into a bit of trouble for suggesting you might go back in time and smother Trump in his crib. Stand by that one.
0: What happened is I was at a bookstore in Washington, D.C., and somebody said, what do you think about Donald Trump? And the audience groaned. And I know that groan. That groan is, can we go five minutes without talking about Donald Trump? And so I said, I wrote a story that's in the Paris Review. I said, that kind of sums up how I feel. And then the person pushed back and asked another question. And I said, well, it's not really, it's not really my subject. And then she asked a third time. And I said, okay, I'd like to build a time machine and go back in time, and smother him in his crib. Well, I didn't know she was on CNN. And so she tweeted, David Sedaris just said he wanted to smother Donald Trump. So by the time I left the bookstore that night, it had gone on to a conservative website and I was getting death threats, which I don't take seriously, but my agent told me about them, right? So he said, you need to prepare a statement because the Kathy Griffiths thing had just happened. So I prepared a statement, which was, I am so sorry, I misspoke. Instead of going in a time machine and smothering Donald Trump in his crib, I'd go back a little further and convince his mother to have an abortion. We're talking about what I would do with a time machine. You know, <laughs> I couldn't understand people. That's, that's a bit different than saying I've got a gun and I'm going to go down there. We're talking about a time machine. So you
1: calmed that one down nicely and... <laughs> But it does raise the issue, and the abortion is another, you know, you just put another big word in there. It does raise that issue of whether there are limits of what can be joked about, are there?
0: I don't think so. No, I really don't think so. I don't... What about cruelty of humour? No limits to that? I'm, see, you know, when people attacked that Michelle Wolf for her White House correspondence thing and said she was being cruel, it was her job to be cruel. It was her job to make fun of people. And I thought she did a fine job. I mean, you hear that a lot now. That's mean.
1: Well, wasn't it mean? I thought it was a bit mean. I thought it was sometimes funny and sometimes mean.
0: No, I didn't think it was that mean. I really didn't. I mean, especially when you're given who she's talking about. You know what I mean? If she's talking about an administration that is going to separate children from their parents, I think talking about Sarah Huckabee Sanders' eyeshadow <laughs> is n- nothing.
1: Well, let's give another example, because it's something you brought up in a recent piece that you've written on gun violence and how alien guns are to you and your family. And this is an integral part of a section of American culture. And it's equally important to those on the other side not to have anything to do with guns. And, uh, you know, it's just an interesting observation on, on that divide. It's a subject that's had very tragic uh, consequences also very recently. But is it also to an extent a subject of that you can
0: treat with wit? Well, you know, the gun thing was interesting because I wrote an essay, and it's, I have it in the New Yorker, and it's about I went to a firing range with my sister Lisa in 2012. And we had to take a gun safety course, and then we had like 10 minutes to shoot. And after about two or three minutes, my sister and I were ready to leave. It was just boring. And so that's all I basically say in this essay is it meant nothing to me. And so it's just interesting to me that you've got this whole other segment of society that absolutely... They stockpile weapons, and it just means everything to them to go out there and shoot up a toaster oven. But it never occurred to me that my audience would have guns. You know, I always signed books before every show, and I would say to people, do you have a gun? Yeah, I have a gun. Yeah, I have a gun. Yeah, I have a gun. You know, it was my father left it to me in his will, or my sister gave it to me for my birthday. So it wasn't the majority of people who had guns, but a fair number of them did have guns I always like Bill Maher I think he's pretty funny and he was saying how the you know people who do have guns in America their fear was that Obama was going to come and melt down their guns to make Tony Awards <laughs> that's exactly what I would like to do David Sedaris thank you very much for joining us it was a great pleasure thank you
1: very good you listen
0: to our podcast by the way no that's well, about time isn't it? it is about time what's it called
1: Well, it's called The Economist Asks. And if you want to subscribe, have a look on your podcast provider. You can search for Economist Radio. Or you could even consider taking out a subscription to our print edition. Go to economist.com slash radio offer. It's 12 issues, $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.